Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The Ad News Podcast. The podcast that celebrates the industry's penchant for a sociable drop and a chat. Welcome to a special edition of the Ad News Podcast. This was recorded at Ad News Live, tackling transparency in June. I'm Ad News Editor Rosie Baker. The Ad News Podcast is sponsored by The Trade Desk, and it's produced for us by Nova Entertainment. This is one of two sessions we had on the day, and we asked the panel to debate solutions to tackling transparency. This panel looks at the agency-client relationship. The suggestions we got were submitted by our panellists ahead of the event, and we also asked our readers to vote on them. You can see the outcomes of that online at adnews.com.au and in the August edition of Ad News Magazine. In this session, moderated by Ad News journalist Arvin Hickman, you'll hear from Brett Dawson, Managing Partner of Bohemia, Kieran Norris, Director of Marketing and Business Insights at American Express, Simon Rutherford, CEO of Slingshot Media, Roz Allison, Media Advising Director at IAG, Christian Kroon, Chief Investment Officer at Omnicom Media Group, and Stephen Wright from Programmatic Media. We hope you find it as interesting as we did on the day. Thank you all for joining us today for the Ad News Tackling Transparency um, debate. Um, this session is going to be more focused on the relationship between agencies and clients. And what we're really trying to achieve here is find solutions. Um, one of the things I've learned covering this um, particular issue over the past couple of years is that every different area of the ecosystem has some culpability. Um, media agencies are under pressure. Um, from clients to do more with less. They're operating on very lean margins and therefore they have to try and drive value um, in areas like digital. You've also got clients who are under budgetary pressures, um, especially from areas like procurement. And, and then also, also you've got media owners um, who are under pressure themselves to win business by offering incentives and bonuses. So what I really want to see clear of is the, the blame game, pointing fingers, everybody in this room has some area of culpability. And what we hope today is to find some legitimate solutions, discuss them, debate them, and what I want from each panellist is to let us know if they think these solutions can work in reality. And on that note, I'd like to invite the panellists to come onto the stage. So today we have Simon Rutherford, he's to the left of me, he's the CEO of independent media agency Slingshot. Next to him is Brett Dawson, the managing partner of Bohemia. Um, next to Brett is Roz Allison, Roz is the media buying director for Insurer IAG. And then we have Stephen Wright, he's a director for Programmatic Media. 
we have Kieran Norris. Kieran is the Director of Marketing and Business Insights at um, American Express. And at the very end there, we have Christian Kroon. Um, Christian is the Chief Investment Officer for Omnicom Media Group. Now, before we move on, just a bit of housekeeping. Um, we'd very much like this to be an interactive debate. Um, please do use the um, hashtag AdNewsLive if you would like to contribute some questions or even if you'd like to take part in our poll. We very much want to get everybody involved and there'll be an opportunity at the end for some of these questions to be answered. Right, so let's move along to the first solution. We've got six of these to go through. The first solution is around the pushback on global media commission rates. Just to give you a bit of background, um, a bit of a scene setter. So you have a global media pitch. Um, global HQ directs the pitch and they set a media um, commission rate um, across the whole world that necessarily doesn't translate to operating costs in Australia, which has a very high standard of labour. Um, so what I wanted to ask, I want to take a client side first, just to give us a bit of an idea about how this works in reality. Kieran, what's, what's your experience with some of the pressure that um, global media commission rates place on marketers and how this might translate to media agencies? Um, I mean, it's, it's not just an Australian issue, I should add. So, I mean, my first experience of this was actually in London when I worked for a, a, an independent agency and we had a client who um, wasn't happy with their paid search provider as it was and uh, was talking to us about it and then we, we gave them our, our rates and, uh, and they said, oh, no, but we, we get it much cheaper from our current provider. Sorry, can you just push the mic a little bit Sorry, closer yeah. to you? So I, I, my first experience with this was actually in, in the UK where I was working in an independent agency and uh, a client we had for one, one uh, was for SEO, was thinking about moving to us for paid search, wasn't happy with the, rate, the, the service they were getting from their, their global agency, I would imagine based on the, 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 the size of their spend and, and what they could do for that. But then when we told them about the prices that we wanted to charge them, they were like, well, we, 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 we pay much less than that. So that, that client wasn't happy with the service they were getting for the rate they were paying, but wasn't necessarily willing to uh, pay more to get, a, to get a better service, which I think highlights the, the challenge that both sides of this relationship face, which is um, we know what we want, but we're not necessarily always, always willing to, to pay it. So, I mean, in, in terms of um, challenges that can put on... Um, both clients and agency, because it works both ways, right? I think as, a, as someone within a client organisation, I, I work for a, you know, a, a part of American Express that isn't, does, isn't the one that's buying the, the TV ads and, and the big outdoor campaigns. So my, my relative spend is, gonna be, is, gonna, is not going to be the majority of the work that's going through with the agency. So I'm sometimes, it sometimes might be in my interest to actually pay more to be able to get, get a dedicated resource which isn't necessarily in the, in the global contracts. Now, there's nothing to stop me doing that, and I, I certainly have ongoing conversations with my agency partners across the region uh, about ensuring that they are fairly remunerated and that a global rate isn't holding us back from, from getting the service that we want. How much tension, though... OK, America's Express is one example, but how much tension are there within other companies to, to sort of push back against some of these global committee commissions? Does anyone have any experience of this? Um, sorry, I, I ran pitches for Trinity P3... Um, for eight years, and uh, across that time, there were pitches um, uh, out of London, out of New York, and out of Tokyo, global pitches, and we were running the part locally. 
Um, now, uh, on all of those pictures, we point out early on that we might have to have different levels of remuneration here in Australia. But when it got down to that, that part of the pitch, all of the discussions and the negotiations were being done um, overseas. And, um, you know, we were then told that 3% had been agreed as a sort of global arrangement. Um, and we'd very quickly point out that, you know, 3% didn't cut it here. Um, and the response from all of the different markets was very much the same, in very different ways. I mean, um, Tokyo used to come back and tell you in very hushed and reverent tones that the, uh, tones that the, the deal that had been done needed to be honoured. Um, the, the, the UK would cut you off after about two sentences and tell you to get lost. <laughs> get stuffed. Those words. You're only Australia. Um, get back in your box. Um, and uh, the Americans, I mean, they'd listen very intently for a long while and they'd actually lull you into a full sense of security that something could be done and then very sympathetically tell you that I'm afraid that's where it was. So, But the answer was the same everywhere. I mean, we don't have the power here in Australia with many clients on those global deals. The only way it can be done is on an ongoing basis when there's a review. The local client isn't getting the service it wanted and you can do something locally that may be a supplement to the deal when they realise that, you know, the agency's struggling to service the business properly on the low level, but at a pitch situation, nigh impossible. Ross, have you had experience of this before and, and how difficult it is to push back? Uh, look, certainly in my previous agency life where you'd be handed a, an account that had been won kind of globally and be handed it on a very low commission or or in a way that allowed you to have a kind of an hour of a search account manager's time across the year to service the account. I think the, the issue, though, is that, that someone can make money or that you can make money globally out of that deal. So it kind of matters a little less that um, perhaps the, econo the, economic, the economic situation doesn't matter for Australia, but that it works globally. So you're suggesting that Australian agencies might be taking a loss? Well, you can always get a hospital pass from the global agency or work out a way to manage the overall fee structure so that it makes sense for Australia and for Vietnam and for the US. But would this drive, really, would this drive really sort of bad behaviour in terms of media agencies trying to derive even more value out of it? Look, I think the bigger issue is that um, clients as a whole understand how their agency can make money, that they understand how an account can be profitable. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean need to be on a totally individual market level, but it must be at whatever stage that contract is done, whether it's on a local level or a global level, that you can hand on heart say that your agency can be profitable, can do the scope of work that you've allocated and that you've agreed, and that they can have a fair chance of making a profit within the bounds of that agreement. Because I think if it doesn't, then you're setting the path for all sorts of non-transparent and poor behaviour. Christian, what's your view on this? Your um, because obviously you work with a, a global holding group, so you must have seen this type of thing happen quite a bit. Well, I'll hold my hand up and say I've only been at Omnicom for uh, about 12 weeks. But, um, <laughs> well, you must see it in 12 weeks, surely. <laughs> I've seen a fair few things in 12 weeks. Uh, so I'd say here we can probably win battles, not wars. Um, there are, you know, Omnicom is lucky. It's got some global clients who do push back, but probably more importantly within their own company have a culture where they're empowered to do so. Mm. If, if the client's global business doesn't work that way, it's not going to go anywhere. And, and that's just a truth, right? That's a fact. 
So I think it's useful. It, it already happens that local clients do push back on that. I think it's not just the fee either. Payment terms, right? 100, 100 plus payment terms for days. Um, you know, I've heard talk of people asking for 200 days before they pay a, an agency. Um, so it's, it's every facet, and that's just how a lot of industries work. And that itself puts a lot of pressure on cash flow, doesn't it? Oh, huge, right? And, and global businesses probably have that opportunity, but if you work at an independent, how on earth are you going to absorb that cost? You can't. Um, but that's not new to advertising. That's just how a lot of industries work. That is the behaviour and culture of other industries coming to advertising. And sometimes I think we look very much at what goes on within advertising, and we should. But we should also bear in mind a lot of this is not new behaviour. It's behaviour that's been going on for a long time in other industries, and it's just coming across. Mm-hmm. Brett, is this something that you believe that media agencies can try to engineer some level of pushback when, when they're in the red pitch situation? Well, I mean, clearly it's up to the local market and the local CMO to... Um, drive change and represent their area. Look, I, I don't think it's going to address the problem that we're here to try and solve today. So um, if there is a variable rate across the world that's in line with the cost of labour in that economy, great. Does that, mean, does that mean that said agency is going to be transparent or not just because they're being paid um, accordingly? Is that going to actually address the thing that we're here to try and solve today? Probably not. Okay. Do you have any thoughts, Simon? Um, yeah, much the same as Brett. I think it's it might be a dot point as you know, dot point number twenty um, on a list of, of things that need to happen um, for us to solve transparency. Um, yeah, look, it might be useful um, if the, if they, if agencies or clients could get to some better agreement around global media um, deals, but I don't think it's the total solution. Okay. Before we move on to the next solution, can I just get each of you to indicate whether you support or, or don't support this as an idea? Uh, yeah, I support it, but I, I don't think it will okay. be a total solution. Brett? I, yeah, support it, but don't think it's relevant. Mm-hmm. Ros? I support it. I think it's very relevant because if you accept poor payment terms or as an agency, if you accept an account that you can't make money on or you can't even pay your existing staff on... And as a client, if you accept people working on your account that you know cannot pay the people to service the business in the way that's been agreed, then you must be accepting a lack of transparency and you must be accepting the poor behaviour that will follow, uh, whether directly or for the industry as a whole, as a, as a direct outcome of, um, of that situation to which both parties have been complicit. Okay. Stephen? I agree with Roz. Okay. <laughs> okay. Very well put. Excellent. Kieran and... and couldn't, I, I couldn't, Roz, couldn't have put it better than Roz. Okay. And, and Christian, you... I'm with Roz too. <laughs> wow, okay. That's four strongs and, and two maybes. Okay, excellent. Let's move along to solution number two. And just remember, guys, you can have your own say on this. You can go to hashtag AdNewsLive on Twitter. So solution number two deals with outlawing agency incentives. Now, by this, we mean things like rebates, commissions, one-off payments, volume-based payments. Um, In some countries, these things are indeed banned, but not in Australia. Um, Christian, what's your view on incentives in general and and whether they should be outlawed? Okay, so um, Omnicom's had a long-standing view on this that Peter Horgan, as our CEO, has been very vocal about. We don't do it. Really simple. Um, it probably cost us business in the past. Um, we've been winning a lot recently. 
sure this is probably part of it. But so that's the kind of Omnicom view and, and, and my view. Outlawing agency incentives. I'm not sure it would work because all you're doing is dealing with the symptoms still rather than the root cause. And if you look at financial services, which was mentioned in the first one as potentially a way of going, financial services is one of the most regulated industries in the world, yet they are in the press an awful lot, being fined an awful lot, and there is still talk of a Royal Commission for the big four banks. That would suggest that regulation doesn't necessarily stop that behaviour. And the regulator is not very good at finding that bad behaviour. It generally comes from one of the premium pubs that we've been hearing from today. So I think regulations symptoms rather than root causes. Simon, what's your view on this? Is it a matter of if you continue to shift the goalposts, people will just find ways around it? Yeah, look, I think they will. I, I, you know, we're getting to some other topics later, but I think the reality is whilst it would be helpful, we're in a self-regulated market, um, what we're really talking about here is, is regulation um, and, you know, agencies that are, you know, in a situation that... And we were just discussing earlier, we'll still find ways to kind of get around it. Um, I'm not sure how you police it. That's my biggest issue with it, um, unless you do put government regulation in, which you know, maybe the, um, uh, you know, the, there needs to be a greater, greater pain associated with not being transparent um, than there currently is. So um, it, it would certainly be one, you know, it could be one of the things that you consider, but I'm just not sure how you police it. You know, market. Okay, what's your what's your point of view on this, Brett? Look, I think it's a good a good suggestion. Again, it just comes down to the devil's in the detail in implementation. And if if it's not regulation, I don't know it would um, be you know effective. Um, it's interesting, like regulations there to you know in a, to try and help in a situation where there's not a lot of competition historically. Um, there's plenty of competition uh, in our sector. Um, so, you know, if it isn't, like, regulated, you're, I think you're alluding to what's going on in the French market at the moment and coming right. in in 2018. Um, if, you know, that would be a way to, um, you know, the, the word outlaw, just, I don't know, I'm jarring the, with that well, term. Can you, can you explain to the audience a little bit more about the French regulation that's coming into place? Oh, look, I think it just it just will will limit the ability for a media agency to on sell media inventory. Um, at its at its core, it'll also um, limit uh, the ability to um, make money uh, in in non transparent ways. So they're literally regulating um, through government exactly what it is that we're here trying to solve a, solve a solution for today. Um, so without something in place to um, drive the implementation of it. I don't know how it would, um, you know, deliver the outcome we seek. Okay. So, I'm, like, I'm for it, um, but th that word, out, uh, you know, outlaw, I'm struggling with a bit. Ros, it sounds like a good idea in, in theory, but is it really workable in practice? Look, I don't know how you make it exactly work in practice, and generally I'm not a fan of over-regulation on, on anything much. But um, I do think it sharpens the focus if something's illegal and if you're part of an organisation where it's accepted in the culture of that organisation that you can treat your clients a certain way, that you can on-sell inventory that they haven't explicitly agreed to be on-sold to, that you're acting as a principal when you haven't 
promised to act, where you've promised to act as an agent only, mm. then this becomes kind of corrupt and you know corrupt behaviour. There's can be allegations of bribery in these kind of um, areas, and I think some regulation is probably not a bad um, idea. Again, I don't know how you quite police it. Um, the French loi sapin is a kind of example of it. Um, I do think it makes people think a lot harder about whether it's worth more than their job to do something they've been asked to do by their company. Um, so in that case, I think it's pretty worth closer investigation okay. of how you would you know, bring it in, how, how you'd make it work. I mean, to use the kind of financial services example, yes, there are ongoing issues with it. But it's certainly sharpened the focus of those, um, you know, financial advisors who have not been operating in their clients' best interest. They've been operating only in their, you know, according to the trailing commissions or whatever that they're going to get as a result of the transaction. Okay, so Stephen, maybe it could, it could serve as a, as a very strong deterrent. Um, yeah, look, there are, there are ways around mm -hmm. it. I mean, the last 15 years in Australia, there's been a mountain of research projects commissioned by media owners um, for agencies to do and, you know, these are the ways round it that people find. So I don't think legislation is the answer. It's a, it's a mild deterrent. Um, we also, a lot of the stuff that goes on here in Australia, it's going on overseas, global deals are being done and it's almost impossible to police and implement. I think there needs to be far more of the carrot approach than the stick approach. A lot of the stuff we're talking about today is about beating people up for not doing the right thing. I think there needs to be a far um, bigger emphasis on the carrot and incentives for agencies to do the right thing by marketers embracing that and rewarding agencies who are transparent, who are doing the right thing. Um, and I think that's probably you know what hasn't happened uh, enough to date. Um, and hopefully as marketers wake up and realise that transparency is holding their business back, um, they will start to reward um, the agencies and agency groups that are offering greater levels of transparency will work in a more ethical way. Okay. Um, so, Karina, so, this focus on punishing bad behaviour, what Stephen is suggesting is that really we should shift the debate to incentivising good behaviour. Is that something that you broadly agree with? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think with, with reference to this particular um, example, I, I'd probably go, go back again, as, as Brett suggested, as to what is it you're trying to achieve. So you might... <laughs> There may be clients who are perfectly, and agencies who are perfectly transparent with each other about the fact that incentives are received for buying with a particular uh, publisher, and and that those are then passed on. And if that and if that client is happy with that, and actually might that might be one of the reasons that they've chosen to go with them. Like I think that one of the other things that's been discussed much over the last you know five ten years is the rise of procurement, right? Uh, and and I don't think many of us know many procurement guys who wouldn't like to get a bit of money back. So so knowing that by by sending their 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 spend in a particular way, some of it might come back. That could that could be appealing, and and certainly my experience in other markets is that that's commonplace. Like there will be incentives that are known, transparent, and are passed back to clients. So um, outlawing it seems a little bit like a. a but how, how do you know media agency groups would be doing that? How do you know they're not just giving you a smaller share and and, and keeping some some on the side? I mean, how, how do you actually make that transparent? So I, I'd suggest it comes down to. The terms of your con so I think I think your point about the 
ensuring that the marketers know what they're, what they're talking about and know what they're asking is the key point. So it comes down to the terms of your contract, which I know the AANA is, is talked about quite a lot. It can come down to whether you have auditing rights. Um, certainly some of the, the agency groups um, are, are subject to different regulations and auditing from um, government bodies based on where they're, they're listed. Um, to know, like you can outlaw something, and that doesn't mean you know what your agency's doing, because if your agency's breaking the law, which I don't think any of them are, then you're still not going to know something, right? Like you, you want to do, to your point, you want to put them in the position where it's in their best interest to do what's at your best interest. And part of that's about the trust, and part of about that, that is about not necessarily using a hammer to, to crack a nut. Okay, can we quick, get a quick yes or no on the solution, starting from you, Christian? I'll go with no, because I don't think it's practical. Okay. No, I don't, I don't use the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's any harm in it, but I'd say no, because I, I think it's a red herring as a solution. Ros? Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say a yes to take a closer look at it. I think if it can iron out some kind of borderline corrupt behaviour, then it's not a bad thing, and no-one in this panel should be, af- should be afraid of it if that's the case. OK, Brett? Look, it's a, it's a demand economy. We will absolutely drive for any incentive we can get on behalf of a client. Fact. Um, it just needs to go directly back to the client that that incentive was negotiated on behalf. So <coughs> if there is something in place that, if, whether it's regulation, jurisdiction, something that ensures that happens every time, um, I'm for it. OK. Simon? Yeah, I think it'll be the same as Brett. I think um, we need to have some sort of regulation around it or, or structure around it and it needs to be able to be policed for it to work. Um, and I think if agencies are able to get discounts for their clients, then that's okay, provided it's passed back to those clients. Okay. This neatly segues into solution number three. And solution number three deals with industry transparency benchmarks. So if regulation isn't the answer, is, is then greater transparency around what's actually going on, um, the way to do this. Um, this could include things like programmatic, um, if a media buyer is acting as a principal and as an agency. Um, it could do with discounts and free inventories and whether they're passed on to clients or media holes, unclaimed media owner invoices which are declared to clients. Simon, what's your view about setting industry transparency benchmarks? Uh, yeah, I'm in favour of it. Um, I think the thing is we've got to understand what the problem is. So we're looking to create a sustainable industry for agencies, for clients and the services they receive and also for the media owners. At the end of the day, transparency, like we're having wild debates about so many different things, there's no single solution, but I think if we can set a benchmark for what transparency means um, that has some simple things that clients can look at and go, okay, my agency's doing all these things and agencies can look at and go, am I living up to that benchmark? and I think that at least would uh, would obviously need AANA, ADMA, um, IAB to kind of come together to create something simple. Now, obviously, the AANA contract is obviously a step forward, but it's a 60-page 60, contract that's trying to, um, I guess, govern for every single possible thing that may happen. But I think we just need to have a, a simpler... Um, solution which might be by way of a benchmark or a charter or manifesto, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Brett, how would such a charter or um, benchmark um, work in reality? How would you police it? Well, I don't... 
again, it comes back to the last one. I think it's quite hard to police. I think this, I think it's a good thing. Um, so a bit like the first debate, a, a benchmark is just a common set of language of what what um, a, a, an agency or a relationship between a client and an agency or an industry at large deems as um, you know the benchmark. So um, if, we, if we could, as a collective, agree what are the bits that are included and what do we believe is um, acceptable uh, as a start point, and it was refreshed at least annually, um, given the rate of change that's happening in our industry, I think it's, it's got to be a good first, first base. Stephen, which areas specifically do you think really would need to be in, in some sort of benchmark or charter? Look, um, transparency, I mean, when I ran pitches at Trinity B3 and we used to see what all of the agencies said about themselves, you'd never see such a lot of bullshit in all your life with regard to <laughs> transparency and ethics and behaviour. I mean, um, yeah, if agencies are left to write their own transparency charters, um, they'd be very carefully worded to avoid transparency where they don't want to deliver transparency. So you'll end up with clients having to interpret all of these different transparency yeah. charges and try and work out you know, what's going on, and they'll need legal teams to do that. Um, so the whole area of transparency, I mean, everyone's jumping up saying we're now transparent um, with jazz hands, and you know, a lot of them aren't. Um, they never have been. They probably never will be. Um, so we desperately need a standard industry thing we can look at that's clear, that's simple, the AANA sort of booklet guidelines have like six points on transparency. Every agency should turn to those and say yes, 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 or no, or yes, and say quite clearly whether they meet each of those sort of six areas in terms of transparency all the time to all clients. Which, which areas specifically? Can you, can you list them for us? Or well, I think ones? one of the... One of the areas is around the incentives that come back, around ownership of middlemen in the digital supply chain. Um, they need to declare all of these and whether they make a dollar and then, you know, at times how much that is um, to all of their partners. I mean, Mark Lolbeck said that they have all these discussions with all of their clients across Group M. Um, I'm not sure that's happening every day on every client. I'm not sure if you looked at all of the Group M clients across all of the agencies, whether they will concur with what Mark Lowellback currently said. I, I hope that that's the case. But, um, you know, I know people at some of those clients who have absolutely no idea about some of these things. So, you know, that's fine in principle, but it needs to work in practice as well. But we need to come back to a central <coughs> charter, something that's simple, something that you know, one of the trade journals could run. They could ask all the agencies to declare their position on all of the transparency points that the AANA have laid out. And then everyone has complete clarity. We don't have to decipher anything that any of the agencies put out. Um, and, you know, we, we have something that marketers can look at with a degree of confidence. Christian, do you, do you take Stephen's point about agencies talking the talk but not always walking the walk? Um, I'll take the point, I think... Depends on the client as well. I don't know that every client does care. Would about transparency? Point. About transparency, yeah. Having been on the sales side for, for quite a long time and then watching the industry, I don't know that everyone does. There's, there's quite a few um, businesses out there that operate in a non-disclosed way. No Omnicom ones, but they are out there and they still have clients. So that would suggest that that isn't always the driving force for, for some people, in my opinion. That's fine. It doesn't do any harm. Uh, potentially it doesn't do any harm. Uh, 
I think for me, it's interesting. If you look at most marketeers will say how busy they are, and they might spend less than 5% of their time on where they spend their money. But they then talk about how they are... Uh, they have to stand in front of the board and justify where all that money goes. But you spend, what, less than 5% of your time looking at where you spent it? Um, which might be paraphrasing in the wrong context. But you're also now seeing the rise of a chief media officer at some large global clients because they want that in-house understanding of what really goes on within the industry... And those are the clients who seem to be forging ahead quite well. I think McDonald's has started to roll that out across a number of different places. That gives them the in-house, independent knowledge to be comfortable with what they're being told. Because even if every agency went out today and, and said they'd all signed up to the six points, I don't think we'd believe them. So what you're saying is that clients, a lot of clients, and I, can't, I don't want to generalise here, but a lot of clients don't have the in-house capability to call bullshit on what the media agencies tell them. Oh, look, as the guy said, 60-page contract... Um, I think that would be hard for anyone to decipher and understand every element of it. And it's a very complex market. If we've, if we've decided programmatic should be in-house, because um, that's complex and difficult and we want to understand it, having a chief media officer would probably do no harm. What's your view I'll, on this, I'll Kieran? take 60 pages over six points. <laughs> <laughs> like, seriously, you, you buy a house, the contract is 60 pages. You know, if you're buying millions and millions and millions of dollars of media on your client's behalf and... We need a 60-page document to ensure that each party's best interests are taken care of. That's, that's what we need to do. But, Brett, it might be that the, one of the points in the benchmark is that you've adopted the AA and A contract. Yep. That's what I'm saying. But does that where, is that where it stops? I don't think it is. I think transparency is a much bigger, bigger broader issue that that contract deals with most of the things but not all of them. Not I, all. I wouldn't involve the contract either. I mean, having worked with clients who've been involved in getting these contracts signed, um, a contract can ping-pong backwards and forwards between sets of lawyers for 18 months of a two-year contract before it's signed. Um, so, you know, and, uh, you know, if you're in agency land, you'll send the contract to your, your legal people and you'll get 20 pages back of things they're not happy with. Um, and this whole sort of protracted discussion then takes place. The, the, the contract that the AANA produced, it's like the ANA one, the ISBO one in the UK. It's a beast. It's an absolute beast of a contract. It, it, would, it is so difficult to get, to, would be to get that signed. Um, and a lot of clients as well have contract templates they have to use internally. So you know, they, they aren't in a position where they can look at a, a contract that exists outside of ones um, that they have internally. I don't think contracts is the answer. I think an openly stated position on transparency that agencies then either have to live up to or get penalised by the market if they don't. Um, You know, there's no way to... They could say we're going to do this level of transparency in that level, and if they don't, they'll eventually get found out. And then if the market says, well, you know, you're dishonest, you're deceitful, you were fooling clients, then hopefully... Clients would, you know, um, decide that they they weren't an option for them. Um, I think that's the easiest way to do it. Anything else is incredibly complicated. Okay, I just wanted to ask Roz and and Kieran their thoughts from a client side whether industry transparency benchmarks would help. And and also on the point of whether there is enough in house knowledge or or capability to challenge some of the assertions that media agencies um, um, put forward to them. Roz? Look, I think you can't replace proper in-house expertise, you know, direct understanding of how things work uh, for agencies, for media owners. You can't replace that with a set of um, 
transparency benchmarks. So I think that's a danger of this happening should this solution um, get up. Uh, I think you can't underestimate the benefit of um, understanding how agencies work, how their tools work, um, how their programmatic models work um, with a kind of marketing side, client side, um, pretending to understand what um, the minutiae of what's going on agency side. It's never been more complex. It's never been more fragmented. It's never been more technical and more difficult to understand um, the transaction process, let alone the kind of strategic process that our agencies, um, you know, develop on our behalf. So I think you can't exchange a set of benchmarks. Feels like a pretty flippant um, solution to the answer, I think, which is really. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED, or your travel advisor. ...about having um, good in-house, um, in-depth client expertise. That, 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 that's um, all good and well, but there might be a lot of clients out there, um, smaller to medium-sized clients, who simply can't afford that level of resource. Would, would this not, not serve as a good baseline? I would challenge them to rethink that because often people regard the amount of money they pay their agency either as a commission or a retainer and they kind of figure that <coughs> is the media cost. If they actually look at how much money they were spending on media and tried to spend that money in any other channel like to buy new computers with that money or an IT system or something, they'd find there's actually a huge amount more procurement um, and other issues they need to work through internally to spend that money. kind of feels that when it's a media budget, it's okay to spend it kind of through the agency and people tend not to include the full value of the media spend in their thinking about how important that is within the organisation. Okay. Kieran, what's your views on this? So I, I, I don't think... A I don't think it can hurt having the benchmarks. Again, I think it's important to understand that benchmarks aren't going to be a kind of a black or white thing where if you're on this side of the benchmarks, you're good, and if you're on this side, you're bad. Again, there might be, there might be clients who are perfectly happy to have whatever these benchmarks list and, and be on one side or the other. So, I mean, Rob Norman at WPP, or Group M, I think has been quite open. Again, that he talked about their transparently opaque, right? So if, you, if, if the Zaxxas model is right for you, then, that's, then you, you agree. And <coughs> having been in there, you talk very openly about, so here's what it will do, but here's, here's what we won't show you, right? Um, but we also have 
this offering or we have this offering. And there's, there's, multiple, there's multiple services and it's what is, is, is right for the client. So definitely agree there with Ros's po point that you need the, the in-house knowledge and understanding to appreciate what the, what the variances between those are. And, and I'd add as well, I, I, I think it's not just about your relationship with your agency, because increasingly, as many people have suggested, we're, clients are going direct, whether that be to technology companies, to media companies, to companies where we're not sure if they're media companies or technology companies, and they're half and half. And often, the, the conversations they might be having with you, again, through no desire on their part to be... Um, disingenuous or deceiving, if you've got someone internally who doesn't understand the complexities of what you're of being discussed, they could make bad decisions um, without realising it. So I, I actually think that highlights in many ways the values that agencies can provide for those day-to-day -day conversations such as, oh, we've got this media and they've got this great offering and we can target people and, okay, cool, is it compliant with our privacy regulations? Are they going to use something like integral ad science? Oh, I, I didn't know I needed to ask that, right? And, and I think just having this simple benchmark might not cover off some of the complexities if you actually start to kind of demonise the agencies and push them okay. to one side. Can I just get a quick yes or no from, from the panel on, on whether they, they support this solution? Starting with you, Simon. Yes. Yep. Ros? Yeah, I hope that doesn't replace expertise and knowledge, mm -hmm. though. Uh, an emphatic yes. Okay. Not quite so emphatic, but still yes. Okay. Christian? Yeah. Okay, that's consensus. Well done, guys. Let's move along. Um, the next solution is about industry standards on cost. Um, now, this obviously has to do with pitching and with, I guess, trying to shed light on things like billable hours and rate cards and, and just trying to inject a bit more transparency in that process so that marketers, procurement teams and agencies are sort of all on a level playing field, if you like. Um, Brett, what, what's your view on this particular solution? Do you, do you think it would help improve transparency in, in a broader situation? I think, look, if, if you buy a car to get you from A to B, they cost different amounts. Um, if I buy a Commodore, it'll still get me down to my parents' house, or if I buy an Audi, it'll still get me down to my parents' house. Um, it's like dumbing down and making every single um, piece of service that comes out of a media agency identical. And... Um, that's not the case. Is it doing that, though, or is it just saying this is the minimum that we can actually have for it to be sustainable? It could be at a minimum, but then it's uh, in the wrong hands. It could be used as a standard. It says they're industry standard, so if it was that, that is it, that is all I'm paying, I'm going to treat every single agency and every single service as the same, um, I don't think that's a good thing in a, in a competitive industry that we operate in. Um, clearly, um, I think there was a Warren Buffett quote up um, today around uh, the notion of um, value and, um, you know, what you pay um, versus the value you get are, t are two different things. So, um, I, as I read it uh, and as I understood it, I don't think it's um, the right way forward. Well, quite, quite often I, I hear from um, some of my contacts that, you know, they're in a media pitch situation and they have been told that they did the best in the pitch, they got the, the highest scores, and then all of a sudden Agency X gets it purely based on cost. Surely this would help um, eradicate those sorts of concerns. Simon? Um, look, I think it probably just needs to be reframed as educating, ed educating clients on what is sustainable for agency fees. So I think, you know, as Brett said, um, agencies have different services, um, different offerings, 
different cost structures, etc. But I think um, there's still quite a few clients living in 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 the past as far as their expectations on what they can pay um, agencies, um, and obviously different agencies have different offerings. So I think you need to be able to have some flexibility in there. But I think it's more about um, being able to. I know the MFA does their kind of um, salary review or whatever, but I'm just not sure whether that gets shared outside of anyone other than the, within the MFA. So I think it might be more about the AANA and ADMA having some greater education around um, what's actually more feasible these days for paying your agencies. Okay. Well, what would you in this, Ros? Will this help you in a pitch situation? Oh, look, I think some aspects may be useful just if there was more understanding about billable hours and that kind of thing. But I think broadly it's it could be very damaging to the industry. You know, we're not babies. We don't buy a media agency on a commodity basis. We're not buying 1,800 hours of a search account manager at $200 an hour or whatever it is. We want good people, smart people, um, independent thinkers... Um, you know, who are going to provide excellent, independent, strategic advice to our business um, that may cost $100 on this standard, it may cost something else on a different standard. Um, I think as a client <coughs> representative, we'd want to have our own ability to choose and make decisions about the partners that we want to work with, um, not bring it down to some billable hours on a spreadsheet. Okay, well, what's your view on this, Stephen, having been involved in many pitch situations? Um, hasn't got a hope in hell of working. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of talk at the moment about advertisers not trusting agencies. Agencies don't trust each other far more than that. Um, so, you know, to have some sort of arrangement where all agencies are going to charge on a similar basis, none of them will <coughs> trust any of the others to stay to that. I mean, they've been involved in this race to the bottom on pricing for a number of years now. Um, and undercut each other time and time again. Not everyone. Some, some, not all. No, some. No, not, not, not everyone. But um, So the idea of setting, saying we're all going to charge a sort of base level price and no one's going to go below that, not a chance. Kieran? Yeah, I would probably say the same thing. And again, but going back to my previous experience, I'd, I'd put it back that this could, if this can exist on a, on a, at a pitch level and it can have been agreed and then a client hears something that they think sounds better and they might decide to go for that. And I've, you know, I think probably most of us have had direct experience on one side or other of, of our working careers where you put forward, or an agency puts forward something which they believe is a, it's a transparent margin on a transparent working cost, and someone comes back and says, oh, your costs are a bit expensive. So they're happy with the margin, but they think your costs are too much. So, so that, that's still, that challenge then comes back to the education, to the, the openness of the buyer in this situation of the services to allow the, the provider to, to make, it, to make a, a profitable business out of it. Okay. And, and having a benchmark doesn't force them to do that. Okay, I'll just quickly get your views, Christian. <coughs> oh, really easy. Kieran said it very well. So, Okay. So I'm going to take that's a no across the panel. Are there any, any, anybody willing to say that's a good idea? Okay, that was nice just, and easy. Just thinking aloud, if it was like a, a red flag to a client, so if there was a minimum level, you know, this, this overhead, this margin for this kind of quantum of work, uh, if an agency was dropping significantly below that and it was a red flag to a client to say, well, we know that they're not going to be losing money in this relationship, something else must be happening, 
um, than if it's a, a you know a tool to help um, draw um, questioning from a client. I think it it, it could help, but it's not going to it's not going to solve the issue that we're here to solve. Brett, a lot of clients don't care. I mean, I ran pitches where you look at the amount of money an agency is asking for, and it barely covers their salaries, and clients and procurement go, oh, that's great, we should still look at that. Um, and, you know, they really don't care um, about it enough for that to be, you know, for it to actually affect their decisions. They are only like answerable for the amount of money they have to pay. The fact that the agency may be getting a whole load of money on the side from meter owners, they almost look at that as a plus, as long as they feel it doesn't affect the decisions that are made on their business with their trading and their buying and their selection, um, a lot of them are quite happy with that. Yeah, but therein lies the entire problem yeah. here. That Absolutely. If, 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 you, if you can't give independent, trusted advice, yeah, what is the role of a media agency? If that, if that very foundation of the relationship is broken and the client's willing to break that on the way in... Well, what, clients don't perceive that they're compromising... <coughs> the media selections and decisions that are made, um, even though they're paying a rock-bottom rate that must be um, supplemented by media. And, you know, it, they, that's the reality of it. Is it right? Is it appropriate? No. Um, but Which is why I suggested maybe a bit more education. It's not about creating a standard. It's more about just some education, um, given that we were saying earlier that, um, you know, it is... Whilst it's only five percent of a client's day because we've got so many other things on their on their agenda, um, that just having some kind of understanding of what benchmark costs should be may be a helpful tool as opposed yeah. to the solution. It's not a solution. Okay, let's move along to our next solution, which looks at remuneration models. And what we're trying to establish here, it's it's quite a tricky one. Is there a best practice remuneration <coughs> model that we should be championing in the industry? Um, I'll start off with you first, Christian. Um, I don't know if there's a best practice one. I do think where an agency has shared goals with a client and some of your fees potentially at risk is no bad thing, that you've got that, you share that amongst yourselves. So more than happy to have that conversation. Not all the data is always there. Again, we'll take a leap of faith in an open discussion. So I don't think it's a best practice one, but it's certainly always worth having the discussion if you're the client about will you put some of your fee at risk but also is there upside right so uh, you hear a lot around if there's any downside the agency wears it if there's any upside the client keeps it all mm. that leads to a negative relationship if there's a relationship where you say well you can make more if I make more because we're starting to talk about the value of what you you achieve rather than just your input costs which I think Andrew Knott was talking about at the beginning and we've kind of referenced through this value rather than cost and we share that upside together, then we've got incentives that are going in the right direction, not the wrong direction. So I think this is a good one. What exactly it is and what the mix is will always be slightly different, but it's a good idea because that model starts to talk about root causes, not just symptoms. That's right. Kieran, do you, do you, also, do you see many examples where clients are, are quite happy to take all the upside and, and they're quite happy to dump all the downside on media agencies? Is, is that a common practice that you've, you've observed? <coughs> Not put like that, I don't think. I mean, I, I, well, how would you put it? What I, what I would say is, I think what what Christian's described is something that is of great interest to both agencies and clients, as I've seen it. 
But as with most of this, the, the, the challenge is in the detail. So how do you actually track that? So if, if as an example, it was um, digital credit card acquisition, then in, that's relatively easy. And there's a word for it. It's called affiliate marketing, right? And, and, and that's pretty widespread and lots of people do it. When you're talking about big, above-the-line brand activity, maybe global creative, and you're flogging cars... How do you actually, and it was how do you actually, how do you actually track that back to the work that that agency did? It, it's going to be pretty complex, and you're probably going to have a 600-page contract, not a 60-page one. So, um, as with most things, I think the, I think the, <coughs> there are there are variances, and and the partners and who, who actually treat it as a partnership and want to have a good relationship don't try and dump it all but to the point at the beginning i think one of the biggest ones can be payment terms right like mm. that uh that can set up a, a relationship in a, in a negative way when you consider that you might be dealing with millions tens of millions hundred millions of dollars um at a global level so it it, it, it it's so specific to the individual relationship Okay. I'm quite interested to hear your view, Stephen, because you have a lot of experience looking at different remuneration models and how they drive different behaviours. What are some of the things that you've noticed about that and, and where do you think we can find common ground to improve it? Uh, I think performance has to be sort of the solution. The problem with performance is you have to set goals and targets uh, and the sad fact of the matter is that there's not many marketers who have got enough information to accurately set targets, particularly in the, uh, the newer areas in the digital space. But in principle, um, all contracts should be 100% or largely based on performance. Um, you know, when in my role at Trinity P3, when I was looking at contracts, I was called into a client once to look at um, their sort of performance-based um, arrangement with their agency. And the agency was making more in a year on their bonus, which was performance link, than the, the retainer. Um, and I said, well, who set the targets? The agency. Who tracked the targets? The agency. And, uh, oh, well, <laughs> is it any surprise then that they got a $1.7 million bonus last year? You know? um, so as a client, you need Maybe to... Maybe they just did an amazing job. Um, they'd like to say that they did. <laughs> they did do a good job, but, um, you know, when... When you're being paid a $1.7 million bonus on a $1.4 million retainer, you know, it's, um, there's probably something wrong. So performance is definitely the answer. Um, the problem is in, in actually finding a, a framework to, to structure an arrangement around that. Um, okay. What's worked well for you, Ros? I would say that no-one's getting that performance piece right. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you prove it, even if you're, you know, the most digital credit card acquisition, relying on affiliate marketing. I'd say there's a lot of problems in affiliate marketing and true performance-based um, results. I would think that if you rely heavily on performance-related bonuses, you then encourage a whole lot of very one-dimensional behaviour from your agency. Um, everyone goes after that one goal, whether it's cheaper CPMs on TV or a certain number of clicks or whatever it is, it can encourage very um, narrow-focused, poor behaviour, I think, on an end goal, which may feel like it's your end goal but not actually be your end goal. So getting those, that mix of performance KPIs is fundamentally important, otherwise it becomes very blinkered. Oh, look, it's beautiful in theory. I would argue I've never seen it in any way work in practice. Um, 
and I think it then encourages people to go down a very narrow path um, to get to that end result, which is not, in fact, um, usually in your best interests. Okay. What's your view on this, Brett? Well, the, the, the word best practice I, I like, so uh, it's, in, again, in education, but the issue is no two clients are the same. So, um, you know, he heading towards outcome-based remuneration, yep, that's the way the world's heading to, but as you so beautifully put it, it's hard hard to attribute um, and there is a lot of complexity uh, as you move beyond last click and try to attribute further further up. Um, so it's complicated, um, but, you know, the thought to, of um, educating on what remuneration models exist, what works, um, and but going in through the lens of no two clients are the same. Um, I, th I think again, if, if, it, if it aids in educating the industry um, and lifting us out of a traditional legacy commission model, I think it, it, it would help, but it won't solve. Okay. Well, what's your view, Simon? Um, look, I think I agree with what's been said. I think. Fee-based and, and performance-based um, models are the best, but again, I've seen so many of the performance models not actually be able to be put into action. Mm. So you, you set off on that journey, and we, we always say, look, we're happy to go down that route, provided it's independently audited, so that you know you're getting what you say you know, you're going to get, and we, and we know that <coughs> we'll get what we wanted to get, and we delivered it all. Um, but... Um, you know, when you're talking about, you know, the bonus might be 50 grand or 100 grand and the amount of resource that needs to go into actually trying to calculate whether or not that was actually correct. I've had that many clients, you know, after sort of six months of discussions just go, it's too hard. Mm. You know. Okay, can we get quick yes or no's on, on whether we like that as a solution? Uh, education, yes. Yes, for education. Um, I don't think there's one best practice remuneration model, no. Okay. No, really right. Why? Uh, performance in principle, but very hard. Mm -hmm. Karen? Yeah, I don't think there's a single model that can be found. Okay. <laughs> Agreed. I don't think there's a single model, but it's probably the only question we've got today that talks about value created rather than just the input cost. Devilishly hard to do. Uh, and not been done so far, but I'd rather we focused on that, which would be quite a positive, constructive conversation, uh, than the, the body of work that currently is out there, which is all about the input cost, which is never going to end in a happy place. Okay, let's move along to our final solution. And just a quick reminder um, for folks in the audience, if you want to ask a question or, do, or take our live poll, please go to Twitter and hashtag AdNewsLive. The final solution looks at contracts. Um, and it's about enforcing an industry-wide master media contract as a baseline and then updating it annually. It's something which I believe the AANA has sort of put forward as a concept. Stephen, can you please touch on that a little bit? Look, there's nothing wrong with a contract, but it's a beast of a contract. It would, you know, you're going to make a lot of lawyers very rich um, trying to get that one signed. Um, what may be more practical and better is to write an appendix or an addendum to a contract, which are the principles of transparency, and that could then be added to existing contracts. So clients have got a contract that runs another three years. That could be added. Um, it could be far simpler. It could put things in a clearer, slightly less legal language, but leave no um, ambiguity as to what the agency was agreeing to. Um, and that may be far more workable. You could then work with the contract styles and types that clients want. 
um, and you could also add it to existing contracts um, before they're up for renewal. So, you know, those were the thoughts I had in that area. Okay. Get a two or three page <coughs> addendum. What, what's your view on this, Ross? Do you, do you reckon it would help quite a lot of clients to have some sort of template or, or some sort of baseline contract that they can work from? Um, I think it's a very useful contract, actually. Uh, I think it's well written. I don't think you need to be... I'm not a lawyer, but I understand it. Um, if it's 60 pages, then I'm prepared to read it. I don't think you enforce it, though. I think that's where it goes a bit weird. Mm -hmm. um, it's there. It's available. You download it. Anyone can download it, read it, learn about it, use it where it makes sense for your business. But I don't think we're a bunch of dummies that should have to have things enforced on us. You know, it should be there as a useful resource to use. Okay. Brett, what's your view? Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with both sentiments. I think a, a simple addendum, should you choose to uh, apply it, um, which can bring you up to date right now if you're in a great agency relationship and you want to just make sure that this has been addressed, um, it's kind of been in your inbox and you haven't done anything about it, a simple, a simple addendum. Um, and in your words, to take the bits that you like um, and you're comfortable with it, I think that's a good, good step forward. Okay. Simon, I'll get your views and I'll go to the end of the table. Uh, yeah, look, I think um, having, you know, as Steve said, I think having an addendum would be a great idea because um, it's rare that, you know, we'll get many, many times we'll get clients who, have, who are giving us their contract and then we're obviously making sure that we've got the right clause in there. So I think, um, I think having an addendum would be a good idea. Okay. Kieran? Nothing seems bad about that. Um, again, I guess it, it perhaps gets trickier when you're in a global organisation. So is a global organisation going to accept a contract that's been agreed in Australia and then is Australia going to accept what's been agreed in New York? So great idea, the, the devil's going to be in, in, in doing it and, and enforcing it and holding it to it, which comes back to perhaps the thing you can't regulate for, which is trust. Mm -hmm. Christian, what's your view on that? I take away the word enforce, as Rod says. Um, so, yeah, and then how do you audit that and make sure you're on top? But it's, it's not a bad place to start. Um, just enforcing it's a difficult part. So if you move the enforce bit, then we're all broadly in agreement that it's a, it's a good solution? Then I think it's there already. Yeah. Okay. Download it today. Okay. Some good advice, guys. Um, we're going to open it now to questions from the floor, and our Q&A has been brought to you today by Allure Media. Um, just waiting for the first question to appear. Right. Who should be responsible for non-transparent practices in the supply chain? Should it be um, SSPs, arbitraging inventory, or sh to DSPs? Um, I'll start off with you, Brett. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> who should be responsible for untransparent practices? I think we should just leave it as who should be responsible for non-transparent practices in the supply chain? Well, obviously the agency that's engaging that supply. Um, based on the term of the contract that they have with the advertiser. It's pretty so, simple. So, so, you're, so you're saying, because so what, what we're saying here, right, is that there's a tech company that a publisher has, has transacted with, has, has, cho has contracted to, and then you've got a, a company that presumably the agency has contracted to. They're talking to each other, and the agency is expected to know whether or not the uh, price that the SSP is charging has got a, a, a margin on it based on the publisher. I guess what we're trying to look at that, is, is who like, takes this, responsibility. This is, this is the complexity of it, right? Someone, like someone needs to take responsibility. So if, uh, I would, if, if the agency is acting on behalf of the client, they should have... Is that, is, is, I, that I, ask, I pose a question. Is that something that a client is interested in? Is that not the publisher's responsibility? And I believe that there may be court cases in London at the moment between a publisher in this building and presumably one of the ad tech companies about exactly this issue, right? 
which is that, that again, is a contract. Presumably there's another 60-page contract sitting here between the, the publisher and the SSP. And as a client, is it... So I, 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 I have no view on this from an Eric's point of view, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm posing the question. Should a client care whether or not someone is getting a cut of something that, is, that a publisher thinks they're getting, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's another question. And, and, and the, the relationship there is between the publisher and a tech company. Mm. I, I, I challenge the factors that an agency is expected to know the, re, the contractual relationship that every single one of its publishers has with every single one of their tech providers. That's just, like, insanity. Fair enough. Okay. Well, what's your view, Stephen? <coughs> an agency should be responsible for being able to tell a client exactly what proportion went on the raw inventory um, relative to the price they paid. Now, they don't, you know, they don't have to know within the price paid between those two suppliers a level of markup or margin, but they should be able to yeah. outline the breakup of the price um, and they should be able to say, you know, there's talk of 30 cents, 40 cents, 48 cents, I think you had in something you wrote the other day. Um, I mean, it's still too high. It's still too high. More than half the money is being lost in the supply chain, which means the clients are getting you know, less advertising than they should. That is the agency's responsible spend, responsibility, spending the client's money. Um, but you know, the intricacies of the breakdown between some of those digital supply chain links um, is too complicated. Okay, Ros, what's your view when you hear things like, 48 cents is, is non-working when it comes to the digital supply chain. I don't quite always find that non-working or tech tax a kind of odd word, actually. Um, look, I think there's grave problems with this supply chain, like, you know, lack of transparency through the supply chain. I can't see how an agency is going to solve for it because ultimately ag agency typically can't see between the DSP and price paid by or price received by the publisher. So... You know, I was kind of interested in the blockchain discussion from the earlier panel. Um, you know, tech tax kind of implies that there's no value added along the way um, and it's used as a kind of perjurative term. Um, it's worth paying for verification vendors, for viewability, for brand safety along the way. So I wouldn't kind of bundle that into some kind of big tax because um, it's delivering specific additional value to the impression that we're buying. Do you think the problem is that people can't determine what that value is and, and how I much think of that's that? the I think that's the issue, that it, it's harder to um, assign or attribute specific value to um, data you might have bought, whether it's audience data or whatever, um, or to assign value to to specific other technology providers. But I think to bulk it all in is a big tax is um, oversimplifying and making it all a bit kind of alarming without thinking through the individual intricacies of, of a complex supply chain. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Is so, view... I'll just say on that, if it's, sure. if it's a disclosed model that you've got with your trading desk, they should be able to tell you what it is. And if it comes out anywhere near the numbers that have been put around, and, and when Nick Manning spoke at the AANA, it wasn't Australian data, he was using North American data from a couple of clients, so it's questionable that it's useful here. If the numbers are anywhere near like the ones that are put forward, you should ring someone sitting on this panel, Simon, 
Brett or me, because I bet we're nowhere near that. Obviously me first, by the way. <laughs> um, but those numbers are crazy, and I, I can't see anything close to that within our group, and I'm sure those guys would say the same thing. Well, what do you think is a realistic number, based on your own experience? You didn't have to disclose well, the exact uh, amount. That well, no, we're talking about transparency here, so what is, what's more I would say is, I would say it's absolutely nowhere near that number, and if you've got a number close to that when you talk to your trading desk, you should think about that relationship. Now, you might have a non-disclosed model, and you don't know and you don't care, which will be some clients, which we've talked about. But if, if you, you know, and I also agree, it's not necessarily a tech tax, you have a choice. And if you think it adds value, pay it. If you don't think it adds value, don't. Okay. In the interest of time, we'll move on to the next question. Is viewability... Oh, okay, we missed that last question. Can you go back, back one? Is viewability and brand safety just a smokescreen for the real transparency issues, which are rebates and media decisioning based on things outside of media neutrality? Simon? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look, the reality is what we're talking about here is that um, there are agencies taking massive chunks out of clients' budgets, uh, and they shouldn't be. If you are a media agency and you're, and you're um, acting on your client's behalf, you're acting in their best interests and only their best interests. So if you have a DSP and you are channelling money into it um, to... You know, for your own interests, then I think you should be declaring what your margins are in that DSP. Um, if you're, you know, spending money elsewhere, um, then fine. But I just think you've got to, you know, I think viewability is one of the things. But I think at the end of the day, yes, there is a bigger issue, which is um, agencies making a huge amount of money out of this area. Currently. Okay. Keen to hear from the client side here. Roz, what's your view? Is viewability and brand safety a smokescreen for uh, bigger issues? Yeah, I wouldn't say they're a smokescreen because they're just quite separate issues. Um, fundamentally though, it's incredibly important for us to have media agency partners that we trust and that we can work yeah. with because we then really rely on them to help us navigate the other issues of transparency. Um, so I'd say they're separate issues. It's not a smokescreen <coughs> for another. But... Um, Trust and transparency with our media agencies is absolutely fundamental to the way that we can that we can operate. Okay, quick, Kieran, I'll quickly get your views before one more question. today, <coughs> what Ross said. Okay, last question. If we can move on on outlawing agency incentives, things like third line forcing are illegal. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but are publishers still forced to pay third parties to secure media spend? <laughs> Stephen, would you like to have a crack at that? I'm not sure. I'm. I think I know what this might be referring to. Okay. James Diamond actually mentioned it earlier on, so maybe this question's from James. Um, as I understand it, third line forcing is where an agency might tell a publisher they have to use a certain tech vendor. Okay. Yep. Uh, or research company or whatever it might be that they mm -hmm. have a stake or a relationship with, which I learned half an hour ago. Okay. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Should should. What's your view on that? That's a bad thing. It should be outlawed. Should it should be outlawed. outlawed. Yeah, I mean, anything like that isn't client first. Everything, you know, that's agency first approach rather than client first. Um, if you're going to get transparency and you're going to get best practice, then client needs need to come first and foremost. Should clients have direct relationships with these third-party vendors? Do you think that would help? Um, look, uh, the biggest problem at the moment with transparency is the fact that clients don't actually have a great relationship with their agency and the, the uh, programmatic people within their agency because a lot of the programmatic people are sort of stuck in the back office and they don't get a great deal of client contact and there's a breakdown 
at the moment between marketing and the people who are doing the programmatic trading, which is um, leading to some of the inefficiencies and giving rise to people talking about programmatic not working. Um, so that's as big a problem as the pricing issue in itself. It's this uh, sort of dissonance and disconnect between uh, the, the programmatic traders and planners um, and the marketing people. I mean, there are some marketing people we talk to who say they, they don't, don't ever see the team who are actually doing the work and buying the trading. There's buffers of account people with the agencies in which they deal. So, you know, that's, that's as big a problem as anything. Okay. Ros, any final thoughts? Uh, just on that. So we have technology relationships in-house, so direct... Um, relationships with ad servers and DSPs, and I would say that it helps us to work with our agencies in a more effective, transparent and open way. We can look at the results, we can look at every impression transparently and openly, and kind of learn together from that. Okay. So that's been very useful for us. Fantastic. Well, on that note, I would like to thank our panel for joining us. We've come up with some interesting solutions, but I'll hopefully push forward this debate. Thank you very much, guys, and thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ad News podcast, sponsored by The Trade Desk. This episode was recorded at Ad News Live, our Tackling Transparency event in June. Don't forget to check out some of our future events. At our Media and Marketing Summit in Melbourne on the 2nd of August, you can hear from the Holden GM of Marketing, Mark Harland, who will be giving the keynote address. For more information about this event and our future events, you can go to adnews.com.au. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.